Welcome to the Omni Gamers Club podcast. This is Mark Uesa. And this is Daniel Winter. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. Yeah. Uh, you want to jump? Uh, you want to start with what you've been playing? Yeah, well, I mean, that's going to be a pretty short conversation. We haven't, I haven't been playing much this uh, last couple of weeks. We've got a, a sick toddler on our hands, and it is the, the spooky season, so my wife and I have been catching up on a bunch of horror movies uh, lately. But I mean, the, the, the last one we did watch was actually game-related, so maybe I'll just give, give a quick shout-out to that. We watched Werewolves Within, uh, which is ostensibly based on the Ubisoft, I think it's a VR game, it in turn is based on the classic social deduction game Werewolf. The, the theme of that game is so vague, so there's not much directly carried across other than there are werewolves and there's a lot of suspicion and paranoia going around. But it, it was a fun movie, great uh, ensemble cast. But nice. um, as to what I've actually been playing, the only thing I've put any real time into is um, continuing Final Fantasy XII, which I'm finally past the point that I last attempted the game. I got about 10 hours in a few years ago, but I'm now well past that point and uh, having a blast with it. Very cool. I saw that on your list, and it's really funny because I, I just had some extra time while I was waiting for dinner to get cooked, which I was making, but I was waiting <laughs> for it to roast. Uh, so I played a bunch of that today, too. Yeah, I, uh, I saw really that on, on the Xbox today that you were playing. But maybe we'll hold off any thoughts on that, because maybe we'll talk about that in some more detail. On top of that, I've been playing a ton of an old nemesis of mine called Satisfactory. It's basically 3D Factorio, if, if you're into either of those games. And it's a terribly addictive game. It's for PC, and I've even got my uh, oldest kid into it. It's quite an obsession in this household. And I've never played any of those factory games the very much be like the optimization puzzles i guess right which isn't really my jam i guess you need a little more guidance and story <laughs> rather than just op- optimization for the sake of optimization <laughs> yeah it's super right up my alley i mean it's <laughs> kind of relaxing in a sense and then i guess you and i played castles of burgundy the other day online yes it's on board game arena now which <laughs> was a, a strange game because we're both played it years ago and I, I played it a bunch but not for five years or so and so i don't think either of us remembered how to play the game but just dove into to the board game arena without really brushing up on the rules and a lot of winging it there but it was, it was good fun yeah i think that's okay sometimes like you can have that same experience with a physical board game right you dust off an old box and be like how do we do this again <laughs> and that's there's some fun to be had there Board Game Arena, at least you have the benefit of, you can basically intuit a lot of the rules by what it allows you and doesn't allow you to do. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, that's one of the good things of that platform. Yeah, that was, that was great fun. But uh, why don't we get to the main topic of today? We had a brief talk about, since it's the, the, the spooky season, that we wanted to cover a, a, a horror game. And I don't know that this necessarily counts as that. But uh, the game we settled on, one way or another, is The Long Dark. Uh, it was published in 2017, at least that's when it came out of early access. Uh, and the developer is Hinterland Studio, right here in our backyard of uh, Vancouver. They have been releasing episodic content as far as up to just recently. I think they just, just dropped an episode uh, the other day. Yeah, literally just this month they came out with episode four or five of the, of the story content but i mean the, the original focus of the game was the survival mode it just lasts as long as you can basically in a somewhat procedurally generated map 
the director and writer is a guy called Raphael Van Lierop or Lyrop. Of course, there's a large team of industry veterans involved in this game from a whole bunch of different studios. I was quite excited to see Ken Rolston's name in there, uh, who was lead director on Morrowind and Oblivion. Like Morrowind's like right. my, my favorite game, hands down. So anytime I see I see anyone involved with that, I, I get quite excited. And this game is very popular, it seems like, and it's widely available on a bunch of different platforms. Uh, PC, of course, PlayStation 4. The newer iterations of those and even Nintendo Switch. So yeah, anyone can get access to this, it seems like. Yeah, so Daniel, what type of game is this? Well, I mean, as, as we I was just saying, it's not necessarily a horror game. Uh, it, what it is, is a survival crafting game, I guess. It's a somewhat open world, semi-open world. I mean, it's set in the remote wilderness of northern Canada. So heavy winter. Uh, it's like some kind of geomagnetic storm, I believe, has come in and cut off a lot of technology. So you're dealing with whatever you can scrounge together, basically. No communication uh, or technology. So you're scrounging for food. You're scrounging for wood to have a fire to keep yourself warm. Me- medical supplies <laughs> to stave off infections. So it's, it's, it's a lot of exploring, scrounging, crafting, all in an effort to survive, basically. And I should come out straight out and say that I've not played the open-ended scenarios. I've only played through the first of the, I think now four narrative episodes, which does have a plot. It does have a cast of characters. Of course, it, it does have a great deal of that open world survival built into it. But that's where I've spent the bulk of my game time here. It's an interesting world that they've set up. It is Canada, but it's not clear what year it is. It's set sometime in the future, or, you know, it's what I might call heightened realism. You know, most everything is real, just like you and I would face in the real world if we were up in northern Canada. But some things are going on in that greater world, in the mainland, as they call it, that are different from what's going on in our current world. Seems like there's some tension. There's some scary things going on in a larger geopolitical sense. Yeah, I mean, it's set on a like a remote island in northern Canada, so it's it's isolated, doubly so. It's already even before any of this, the current situations went down, there was definitely a, a, a big feeling of of these communities out there being alone and fending for themselves beyond now having all of their technology and what few connections they had to the outside world have now been severed. So now they're truly alone. They don't really beat you over the head with a story either. There's definitely a very strong narrative opening segment uh, where you establish some of the the main characters. I guess we're not doing spoilers, right? We can probably do spoilers as far as this first episode is concerned, and since it's just a, a bit of a teaser, yeah. basically, or, or the like the setup, right? The first few minutes yeah. of the of the episode, yeah. So there's these two main characters. I think Mackenzie is the is the protagonist, white male pilot uh, seems to run this air courier service in the great north you know single prop plane sort of a thing and is contacted by seemingly his ex-wife question mark yeah (laughs) question mark question mark they don't make it super clear a doctor who's uh, actually i don't have her name at the moment 
um, because she she doesn't really come up in the story very much except in the third person. Yes, I guess you you lose track of her quite early on. And most of the, the most of the propelling force of the story, at least for the first episode, is following her and trying to track her down, basically. But in the process, you also just have to survive. <laughs> you can't follow her until you have enough equipment and supplies to to get through the mountains, I guess. Right. So the story sort of gets teased out over time. There's a segment where you meet more characters and then more story gets teased out. And I think it's actually really effective. It's it's really moody. And like I said, it's not over over the top. So much of the game is 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 really the survival and exploration, which I really appreciated. They did a lot with essentially this fairly compact episode. They did a lot to set this mood, to build up this world, and to sort of sow the seeds of this story, which kind of promises greater things beyond what actually happens in the first episode. Yeah, I guess it's hinted that whatever your ex-wife was wanting to do up there has some significance to the greater story and maybe what caused the geomagnetic storm or something is something going down but i mean that's just background noise basically i mean it really is a character driven story uh, basically just you and like it's like all of two characters you meet in this first chapter uh and there's a lot of interior monologue and yeah there's there's a strong voice cast in this with some notable people actually uh, I think Jennifer Hale's in there, David Hayter, well-known industry uh, voiceover people uh, for video games are there. So the voice production is very professional. I would say that there's a decent amount of cheesy dialogue, <laughs> especially the opening sequence, um, a lot of tropes and stereotypical stuff. But I think that that kind of works. It the kind of works so, overall. I think they, they, they are quite well performed I, I do think apparently the the game the, the, these first two chapters were actually completely redone at some point they re-recorded all of the dialogue and wrote new stuff and so is at, at some point the, the the original version of those first two weren't well received so they went back and completely redid those and what they do have there now is quite well done i mean tropes aside betrayal and tragedy and, and all that but the, the, the performances do really sell the story what is there Right. The, the the names though are very. Like, I think it was it Grey Mother and Methuselah. They sound like something out of Walking Dead. Walking Dead without the zombies. <laughs> They're clearly code names, or you know, intended to be sort of iconic, like almost like speaking of David Hedder, so almost like you know, Metal Gear Solid names, right? <laughs> and Methuselah. It's it's hinted that he's not even a real person, just like uh, the story goes. Methuselah, the ancient, you know, wise. And the Grey Mother is, is very sort of mystical as well, although you hear a little bit about her real background eventually, which yeah, is quite, there, there quite is nice. Some, there is some details there to ground it in reality, but I mean, it, with everything being so deserted, it's, it's really hard to get much of a, a grip on that. There's so, there's so few people in here. Right. Uh, and then there's, that's also like yeah. a bit of a dream. <laughs> yeah. And then there's one other character, which I definitely don't want to spoil because that's one of the most uh, interesting twists in the story of this game. Oh, with the with the morality choice that comes up? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's set the background a little bit more before we get into some of those key details, of, like the art direction. Yeah. I'm quite, I'm quite enjoyed the style. It's was it like quite low, low poly, uh, but it, it is quite well done. I mean, obviously you've got a lot of weather effects right uh, covering up a lot of the details i really also appreciated the art direction i think it won some awards for it actually 
like you said, very low poly. The textures are quite impressionistically done, sort of like painterly. You know, you see some of these shots of the the faces of the main characters. They're, you know, quite flat with just like some very clear brush strokes and these very muted colors. And just like you'd expect with a, a game set in the Canadian North, the palette is very cold and dark and desaturated. There's a couple of pops of color that come out. In red, some of red the noses, mostly it's the, yeah, most, the most colorful thing you can see. <laughs> exactly, the blood rushing to the nose and the cold weather, and some of the the clothing that you find. There's a very strong day night cycle. Nighttime, it's quite hard to navigate and explore. Also, sets in the very spooky mood. On top of that, survival gets harder. Some places you just can't explore in the pitch dark, like some <laughs> of the buildings you run into. If you don't have a torch on hand. You might as well not explore. And I thought I really appreciated that because that seemed very realistic. There's a great tension there. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm not sure if, it, if it's designed this way, but I reached that first house at nighttime. And so you can talk to the, the character there and, and stand by the fire or warm up, but then you can't actually explore the rest of the house or even so much as find the bed because you don't have a torch. I, I, I don't know if, you, if I was missing something there. Right. Uh, I think you have, I think you have some matches, and that's about it. I never really found a torch throughout the entirety of the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really smart how they did that. Sounds like we had our intros slightly differently. I spent a night before I reached the town, which is really like the main part of the game, uh, the main part of the episode, because there's a little kind of tutorial section. You're separated from your wife. You kind of have to drag yourself out of danger, and then you're exploring the world. Civilization is not anywhere nearby uh, until you you explore a decent amount and i appreciated that too sort of reminded me of you know a morrowind or a skyrim i guess more skyrim because it was snowy <laughs> reminded me of a skyrim without without the monsters essentially yeah i mean that, that first moment when you're coming you know, as you said there's a little bit of a tutorialization as you you're coming into the town and traveling over over this mountain pass but as you, you come across this ridge with the the radio tower, I think it was, looking down this town. And that, that was a very evocative moment, just sort sure. of discovering this town as you, as you come across it. I mean, those just the moments you never would really get in the survival mode of this game. I, I, I did play a little bit of that, like in early access, before the story mode was even available. And I kind of bounced off that. But you, you're never going to get those moments, like you do for these crafted Right, these highly scripted moments. Yes, yeah. And I, 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 did, I did appreciate some of those. Yeah, I think they were well-achieved, masterful, environmental storytelling. Yes, yeah. There's definitely uh, cons to this game, so I, I don't want to oversell it. <laughs> Mechanical you know, deficiencies and whatever, which we will go into. But I think of in terms of selling a mood instead of you know, sort of setting up a world, just promising what the future of the story will hold, uh, they did a great job, and it's, it's very evocative of something you can do in the real world. In <laughs> fact, uh, there's a warning at the beginning of every time you play saying, uh, don't try what we've showed you in the real world, kids. <laughs> uh, you could get yourself into real danger if you try this on your own. Well, I mean, it's, it's very much inspired by the the creator living up on the, the this is the northern tip of Vancouver Island which is quite remote and as many mountains up that way but it definitely is remote and a lot of extreme outdoor conditions out there so I imagine it's, it is somewhat inspired by his own experiences 
the mood is set up for this game really well with a um, a beautiful, I would say, I really liked the cinematic intro. Yes, I was going to say earlier that that really sets the tone for the that stylized art direction. Like it really comes across quite nicely in that in that intro. They made some great music choices there. Actually, the music throughout is is fantastic in this game. It's not overly done. Comes in at the right time. You know, key moments when you start to walk over or crest a hill, like you were mentioning, <laughs> uh, near the top of that lookout. Uh, it just really swells and it's really moving. Uh, I think the composers have worked on lots of games before, like Mass Effect and Borderlands and StarCraft and God of War. So clearly they have uh, a lot of industry professionals at work here. Yeah, I did feel that the music was a little loud and abrupt at times. Like so you, there's no sound at all and then suddenly, bam, fruit guitar comes in. Uh, but I mean, other than the, the volume and abruptness, it, like, they did set, they do a good job of setting that tone. It feels very, again, it feels very sort of post-apocalypse the last of us folksy guitars uh all without any actual zombies (laughs) (laughs) you always expect there to be some zombies though i I was expecting the jump scares i would say a hundred percent of the time yeah i mean i guess as i was saying before as to whether this game necessarily counts as a horror game and it's hard i don't know that there's any necessarily any scares in this game but the very much is tension and suspense whether it's just whether you you have enough food to get through the night before you can go outside again when it, when it, once it's light or whether you're trying to get to this next building but there's three wolves in your path and how can you skirt around them yeah i would agree with you there that it's definitely tense the mood setting through the music through the environmental cues through the uh, just you know the mechanisms really i think it's intended to be tense and ominous throughout but yeah it's i wouldn't say it's horror it's nothing shocking at least visually is definitely psychologically there are some tense uh, topics subject matter that's certainly not for kids there's there's a lot of blood uh, uh, to be had if not right in front of your face <laughs> um, definitely some tense topics there should we talk about the survival mechanisms yeah and i, th- I think that's, that's where the game is a little more mixed. I think the core loop is quite interesting. You're, like I said, you, you're basically looking for, was it food, wood, and medical supplies largely. Although, I mean, clothing is also a big factor. Like, every, every right. item of clothing is like, what, 10 slots of clothing. You've got two pairs of pants and two shirts and two hats, <laughs> double, double layers on everything. Uh, and they all have various cold ratings, basically. You definitely go through a bunch of different sets of clothing over the course of the game. And I think that's pretty realistic. I mean, I've never been thrust into a position like our our protagonist has been. But if you're clambering over hillsides, climbing up cliff faces, exploring old dusty houses, I'm sure eventually you have to um, tear down old pieces of clothes you find and, and repair your best winter survival gear. And layer them on. And and that's sort of like a little mini game. Eventually, I got to enjoy that process quite a bit, taking care of your, you know, your your supporting characters, I guess, <laughs> is making sure your your footwear is doing good, making sure your your outerwear is doing well. That part of it was pretty well developed, I thought. Yeah, I mean, as you say though, you can re- you can repair items, but so many of the actions in this game, like repairing items, breaking down crates into wood is a big element of time management. So a, sure. every action you do, you actually, the time will pass in the game. So you may, a, you want to make sure that you're inside when you're doing that, 
<laughs> for safety, but B, like you only have so much time in the day. You've got a hunger meter, a, a thirst meter, a sleep meter, and all those meters are ticking down every time you pass time. So there is there is quite a, a fun element in trying to manage that time. Yeah, and I, I thought they did a fairly good job eventually of of teaching you how to maintain all those elements. I feel like the early part of the game, the tutorialization was fairly minimal. You're basically thrust into it. There's no proper shelter around. There's a cave. And essentially, you have to set up a fire. Ironically, even though your crashed plane is burning all around you, you still <laughs> need to set up a fire. Uh, and you have to patch up some wounds. So you have to patch some some bandages. And I feel like they don't really go into depth as to how to do that kind of like being thrust into the deep end eventually you'll get past that phase once you get to the town you you know you sort of have a mission to collect a bunch of food and to collect a bunch of firewood that sort of forces you to prioritize those things it kind of teaches you by doing it doesn't really explain its system that it just guides you through the systems right. one at a time and sort of forces you to engage with them and, and learn by doing it and there is some um, benefit to that I mean it's a balance I guess between not wanting to be not wanting to spell everything out I mean having a little mm-hmm. bit of opaqueness there to maintain that sense of uncertainty and the not knowing like you're out of your element here you, you went in that those mechanics are just a pick enough to perhaps impart some of that. But there are other, other things that it just never really explains. Like there's a bunch of symbols that keep popping up at the top of the screen. That I assume it's something to do with heat or cold or wind chill that it never really explains what they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I felt like there was always more to know about the system. Like it was a very a living world. But eventually, I don't know how long the first episode took you. I, I started it a couple of times. I did much better the second time I started it. Eventually, I found the survival to be quite manageable because you always had a home base by the gray mother's home. She's your quest giver. She doesn't seem to mind you being there. <laughs> and basically, she's got an unexhaustible uh, fire. So really, after you get the firewood that she demands of you. You don't really have to ever worry about that again, unless you're planning to be out overnight uh, in some of the, you know, extended parts of the map. Yeah. You, I mean, you do always do have that safe haven there. And I have to imagine that some of the future episodes will mix it up and make things more difficult. But for this, at least you always could fall back to that, that safe haven. Uh, There are other elements of, but I never really struggled, but I'm also, a complete hoarder. Like I was having to constantly manage my inventory and see what I could manage to drop because I was maxed out with 50 stale muesli bars and two elk carcasses at all times. But yeah, once I realized that the Grey Mother's house was a safe space, there was a, um, a refrigerator and a freezer, which is somehow working even though the electricity <laughs> was down. Maybe it was just cold enough. That's, that's what uh, I figured. <laughs> right, that I would just drop off food there. And there was another key spot where you first meet Methuselah which I used as a bit of an outpost as well. There's so much um, food to be found in tin cans, water bottles, and soda cans, and you know, basically gas station snacks and stuff like that all around that. I never found food to be a super challenge either. There is a, like a hunting 
elements of this. You can catch rabbits and cook those. Like I found a, a snare and there was some kind of mini game to, to set that up. But I, a, I never found it necessary because I had so many muesli bars and other prepackaged goods. Uh, it wasn't, I didn't have to rely on that. And B, like, I never was able to get the snare to work when even when I did try. I mean, you can throw rocks at the, at the rabbits, I guess, to stun them. Yeah. But it never felt necessary. It was, just, it was more effort than... than exactly, than yeah. I, I sort of felt that that was a con for me. The hunting slash rock throwing and the snare, which I also did find, were useless for me. I, I tried them, got no results. I think I hit a rabbit once, and it just got up and walked away by the time I reached it. Oh, it does um, work. Is this a very small window? I, I managed to catch a couple that right. way, just, just to engage with the systems, but it wasn't necessarily worth it when there are, there are other sources of food out there. Yeah, I think it was basically promising at what would come in the future and what yes, would yeah. you know become more necessary when you're maybe farther away from civilization but for this particular episode to pursue that was not necessary uh, whatsoever so in terms of the survival i thought overall unless you do something dumb like jump off a cliff edge (laughs) you're really not gonna run into much of a physical challenge to survive also you don't want to run into a pack of wolves either i guess that's the other main danger yeah, and they do seem to get increasingly aggressive. I'm not sure if it was my imagination, but just over the course of those few hours, their sort of activation radius seemed to get larger and larger, and they just stalked me from halfway across the map. <laughs> and I never entirely figured out how you were supposed to deal with them, other than just keeping a wide berth, basically. I mean, there's, that's one of the things that the game doesn't really explain, and you have so few resources. And, and there is a, a glossary that you can look through for more information but it doesn't pause the game so you can't exactly be looking up wolf repellents while a wolf is gnawing on your leg yeah i actually um encountered the wolves just a couple of two or three times mostly i encountered just a single wolf on their own and you know i was like three meters away from a single wolf and it ran away from me so Mm. it didn't really bother me and I just intuited that if there was more than one, I would just leave them alone for sure. I mean, when you're in town, you can basically just run from building to building. Like you go inside a building, come back out, and they've despawned, and you can just continue on your way. So that was pretty easy. The problem is when you need to go a little further afield, and which is very rarely required of you. Uh, and that's, that's partly where the, the exploration uh, falls down a little bit. There are a couple of side things in this game, like, oh, there's a a cache set on, on a, in a, in a truck up on the bridge. And that was like the furthest way you could possibly go. Yeah. I went to that one as well. And I thought that was actually nice. It, it was certainly optional, but it was nice that it was there because it also showed you, you know, sort of more of what the, maybe the future episodes would offer is like getting further afield, getting out of your comfort zone, some more environmental survival strategies, because you like the main tension I imagine of this game would be how far do I keep going before hunkering down (laughs) to survive for the night? Right. Mm. That was the only case in the game for me that in one other situation where I really had to make that choice because grandmother's house was pretty much at the center (laughs) of the map. The map is sort of set up like a a cross shape. Hub hub spoke. (laughs) Yeah, precisely. And, And grandmother's house is smack dab in the middle of town. And uh, you only really yeah, run into those difficult situations of surviving or traversing the environment if you branched off quite far away from that main area. That one trip up to the, the car on the, on the bridge, 
it was fun to sort of get out of your element and go a little further afield, but it didn't really feel it was necessarily worth that exploration for what you get from it. And the risk was so much higher than the reward, basically. Like, A, it's just yeah. timing. You don't know how long it's going to take to get up there and back. Is, am I, is it, will I be able to find somewhere up there to to sleep or am I going to have to get, get back before night? I ran into a couple of wolves on the way. I mean, in terms of that, there was another place I explored. Uh, no spoilers, but I, I explored one area that came across a building that was locked. So I went all this way out to this this, this building. It's locked. Nothing to do here. I had to go all the way back, only for like later on in the story to be directed back there, and suddenly it's unlocked now. So right. in some ways, it felt like it was not punishing me for exploring, but it didn't really reward you either. There's one detail that I really appreciated, which was a a hiking trail. Did you come across that one? I don't think so, no. Yeah, so there's literally a trail on the side of the road, just like you see in many parts of Canada and in, in this part of, of the world, where side of the highway, there's there's a hiking trail sign. And, and I'm you're just struck with the irony of it. It's like, here I am at the end of the world, nobody around, and it's recommending that I go on a, a little hike. <laughs> so of course I did. <laughs> a really nice touch, right? Because they didn't have to do that. But it made me feel like I was much more in a real world. And it also made me stop and just kind of look around at the design of the world, take in a little bit of natural beauty. Like I could really, really tell that the designers or the studio are composed of nature lovers who really appreciated the, the types of environments that this uh, game represents. Yeah, that really does come across the very strong sense of place and attention to detail. Uh, though I think that has come down to one of my few criticisms that as, as much as there is some great detail and environmental storytelling, it often wasn't clear what you're able to interact with. So like a lot of decorations and, and clutter in these houses, like telling a just a random piece of paper on the floor as opposed to a note you can interact with often wasn't clear whether which cupboards you can search and and so you, just having to hop, go around the room and hovering over every single thing individually trying to figure out what, what can i interact with what can i loot <laughs> yeah. uh did get a little tedious at times it, it basically it has a very tiny reticle in the center of the screen and it doesn't really show up unless you're highlighting something that is interactive and if that particular thing is small like uh, a stone to throw at a rabbit or something you kind of have to do this little dance of getting the reticle <laughs> over top of the stone and being slightly too far and in, in, in edging back in and it seemed like far far too much work for such a, a simple task in, in reality so you know i i totally know what you mean if there was some sort of like haloing effect around the object to yeah. at least indicate that it was interactive before you went to the effort of zeroing in on it. I think there's like a one second delay in interacting with objects too. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could see that that halo effect would be quite useful though, at least maybe as a, as an optional like difficulty mode, uh, your, your immersive mode, and then you just highlight things for me. I can see that quite a bit. It'd be a nice accessibility option if nothing else. That's that's a big question, and it's not something we're going to answer right now, but it's a big question in game design is, you know, how many affordances do you want to make for usability? I agree it's not realistic to have a halo effect over an object, <laughs> but but you also have senses and capabilities like depth perception and capability to understand things about the world that you don't have the limitations of in a video game. 
you can recognize the volumes of things. You recognize how light shines off of an object and intuit how you can interact with it, as opposed to it being a flat texture on a video game screen. So I see gameplay affordances like little halo effects like that on top of objects as filling in for capabilities that you would have in the real world scenario. Pretty much all video games are just some form of visualization lens or another. None none of this is truly immersive. Uh, But I mean, I I saw an interesting comment from the developer. It might've been from the the, the main director, but basically that there was a loud minority of the fans pushing for the more extreme, the more immersive, the the hard, super hard difficulty modes, and that they were quite cognizant. They didn't want to alienate the silent majority who just want to play the at a sort of story atmospheric level without all the, the hardcore elements. It's hard to say. I mean, I can understand that challenge uh, if you're being torn in two different directions, essentially, to make a game that your Kickstarter backers, because this I think this was a Kickstarter initially, that they would appreciate, especially if this game has a near 10-year life cycle at this point now, 2014 to now, seven, eight, some odd years that they've had to satisfy vastly different audiences at this point. And then once the game goes live, you, you get the filthy casuals like us, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're obviously, I mean, there's, just, there's several different game modes in it as well. And there's completely different audiences for the survival mode versus the story mode that they're having to balance the demands for those somewhat independently, I imagine. So I don't, I don't begrudge them the, the amount of work that's had to go into balancing all of that. Do you have a lot more to cover? There's a couple of, of small notes. I mean, we, we vaguely alluded to there being morality choices in this. There's only one big one that I was aware right. of in this, and I guess we won't spoil it. But I mean, I, I, there's, I, there's no way of knowing if there's any effect. I have to imagine at some point it may pay off uh, in, in a later chapter, perhaps. Yeah. It was a bit of a, a standalone thing that came out of nowhere, though. <laughs> Right. I kind of like that because I was sort of starting to wonder how much of that there would be. There was a lot of secondary optional content, which I appreciated. But I also do like those points of sort of no return because they force you to commit. And then that one key moment where you are forced to make this more morality choice was really, I think, effectively done because it was a punctuation. It was like, this is important this promises to affect you later on in the game. And there was no clear indicator that it, it definitely will, you know, like a telltale game. There was no... Methuselah will remember know, this. <laughs> exactly. There was none of that heavy-handed feedback. And I hope there's more of it in the future chapters. Yeah, I guess it's definitely an element of tension that's hanging over you, whether whether it's whether it's going to come back to bite you or not. Uh, so I guess we'll wait and see. I mean, one, one other thing is, literally just before recording, I booted it up just to start out the second episode. I mean, one, one thing I should say is that the episode it has end quite abruptly. Yeah, I mean, I there's, that there, as well. there's one final area that you walk through that just feel completely useless. To be honest, without without going into spoilers, uh, just yeah, it's, quite, a very, it's quite, just very short, right? Yeah, and then it just ends. It's not even like a cliffhanger ending, which which would be quite appropriate in this game. It just ends on not much at all, to be honest. I thought uh, it was a bit of a cliffhanger. That final cutscene, though, is quite abrupt. That comes out of nowhere. Right. <laughs> uh, but starting up the, the second chapter, I mean, it, it basically starts back up immediately after that, that final little cutscene. But, and I did confirm that the 
items do carry across. There was, there was a lot of items I found I'd been carrying around, hopefully that hoping that this would be useful, like a, a flare gun. I'd, I'd finally found a flare gun, never actually had to use it, but I still have that item and everything else. So at the very least, I'm making chapter two perhaps slightly easier. So there, there is some carry across there. That's good to know. Yeah, you definitely have to make some hard choices eventually when you've collected so much stuff. Like I got to leave some stuff behind at one of my outposts that I've set up. Yeah, I didn't feel too bad leaving a lot of stuff with Grey Mother there, helping her get set up to survive <laughs> the apocalypse. Um, so that is cool. Yeah, I, I thought that the ending of the episode was abrupt as well, but I probably didn't want it to go on much longer in the story. I felt like that was a really good setting of the um, story tone elements and a good introduction into the gameplay uh, mechanisms. So, you know, I definitely want to see more unraveling of the story more characters more explanation but uh yeah where they left it off i I thought was a really good point yeah it does seem like each episode is going to be pretty standalone i don't think we're going back to milton (laughs) uh so all those those little outposts that we set up are wasted unfortunately but uh what we've got on us at least so hopefully that will come in handy you know when you you look at a game like this i thought it was going to be a lot more similar to like a telltale game like like we were speaking of earlier that some key uh, morality choice moments like that main one in the story I, I like it better that they left it at just one as opposed to mm. having these story branching points you know eight or ten of them sort of like a little bit of that telltale formula bolted onto essentially what is a open world you know sort of systems driven uh, survival game I mean, there's so few characters in this that you can't, you can only really hold so many of those big decision story moments and reveals. It's it's a lot more about interiority and just you surviving more than anything else. And in that sense, it has some similarities to more to like crafting games, even something like Minecraft, if you're playing the sort of more survival mode and just surviving for the sake of surviving and carving out your own little area. Survival games are such a popular genre of game now that it's funny. Do you th- you think that this one was one of the initial ones that started that whole craze? I mean, there was a huge influx of them after Minecraft, but I think this was one of the what first ones that really focused on realism, both, I mean, with the various meters and the real world setting. And I mean, it's, it's no supernatural element, really. It's just you versus nature. Yeah, I really appreciated um, what this game promises to to do. Yeah, hoping to get back to to episode two and see how it evolves on the formula. Right on. Any other things you wanted to say about uh, the game before we wrap it up? No, I think that's a a good spot to to cap it. Let's talk about the next game we'll be covering. And which which game is that, Daniel? Well, we're back to the analog arena, obviously. So we're looking at... Yokohama, the board game published by TMG, though, Tasty Minstrel Games, that is. Uh, and I, we've been playing it a lot on Board Game Arena. There's a nice version on there. And I recently picked up the Deluxe Physical Edition, so I'm looking forward to digging into that. I am a big fan of Yokohama. I've, I also have a physical copy, and I played it very little in person years ago when I got it. Very intrigued by the gameplay mechanisms, which I won't go into here. But uh, since it came on BGA, it's I've been playing regularly, and it's great. Definitely holds up there. 
And I should show you my unopened copy of Yokohama Duel as well. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that's a great twist on it. But perhaps we'll discuss that more in the, in the upcoming episode. Very cool. Well, I look forward to that. So as far as what else we're doing in the next couple of weeks, I mean, we may have a couple of streams coming up. By the time you've heard this, we would have already done a stream for All Shucks. Beyond that, uh, I, I may try to stream something for the Long Darkie. I was, I'm not sure if we can, I don't think there's any corp mode for this, but I was thinking I could either play a little bit of episode two or maybe even jump into the survival mode and just pick away at that for a little bit. I'd like to join you for that or at least watch. Yeah, otherwise we also have been recording segments for the What You've Been Playing Wednesday segments over on the Bridge City Board Gamers podcast based over in Saskatoon. They put together a, a compilation of, of other Canadian podcasters and content creators, and we've been submitting little segments to that for the last couple of weeks if you want to hear some other games we've been ta- playing lately. Uh, on my end, uh, quick plug, I have a preview coming out on my Board Game Feast channel. Uh, I mean, that would already be out by the time you're listening to this, but a preview for Steam Up, A Feast for Dim Sum, a new game that's coming to Kickstarter. It'll be live when you're listening to this, and it's by a local Vancouver design team. I've been following their game, uh, Steam Up by Hot Banana, for years now at this point. I'm super excited that it's hitting Kickstarter very soon. Yeah, so stay, check out the Kickstarter and check out my preview for more thoughts. Awesome. Well, you're doing some exciting stuff, so I'll definitely be watching that. For me, I'm just playing games because uh, that's <laughs> what we do that. on the OmniGamers Club. <laughs> that's well, right. We'll uh, find something to play together again soon, hopefully. Awesome. Well, for the OmniGamers Club podcast, I've been Mark Uessa. And I'm Daniel Winter. Let's play them games because they're fun. <laughs>